0: Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things.
1: Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. Um, Today I here with my friend Jay Richards, who's executive editor of The Stream and co-author with Douglas Axe and William Briggs of *The Price of Panic* and how the tyranny of experts turned the pandemic into a catastrophe. Well, we were very skeptical about the lockdowns, very skeptical about masks, and also very skeptical about how lethal the virus was. Well, uh, a couple of weeks after we did the show, uh, Jay got the virus. He was a genuine COVID-19 uh, uh, patient and went through the whole process and Jay's back today to talk about what that was like and how he feels about uh, things right now. Jay? Glad you're with us. Thanks,
0: Bill. I know. Glad you're you're among us. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, we talked when the book, right when it came out, actually. Um, And it's funny because I wrote the book with two co-authors, as you mentioned, and all of us said, you know, we're writing about this from the third person because none of us, I mean, we knew people who had gotten it. In fact, we knew of people who had died, uh, at least with it, maybe from it, Uh, but we hadn't experienced it ourselves. And sure enough, right after the book comes out for some unknown reason, because I'm basically a hermit staying in my house. Uh, I managed to catch it. So. Now,
1: did any of the three of you wish you had had it so you'd have some authority when you wrote the book?
0: You know, honestly, not so we would have authority because it's the reality is the arguments are the same either way. I mean, statistics are statistics either way. But I thought it would be nice to have been able to have experienced it from the inside because we had to just sort of read about it or ask people. Now I've, I've seen it from first person kind of, Workers on the front lines. At least, what it's like for me. Of course, different people have different symptoms, but at least I knew what it was like for me. It's, sort of, I think, representative for somebody my age. So,
1: set this down. Uh, how did? It happen? Yeah. how How did what? A couple of weeks after we did the show, you were just doing what
0: I do. I mean, I'm basically I, I'm working from home. I mean, Catholic University is mostly uh online except for freshmen and so virtually all my work is at home my daughter's kind of come and go but other than going to the gym with a mask i had really not been out that much uh but i just got what was essentially felt like a cold a sort of mild cold a stuffy head kind of tired and fatigued just what in a normal uh, prior to 2020 i thought oh rats i've got a cold Mm -hmm. didn't really think much about it uh but eventually after a few days took my temperature and it looked like i had just almost a degree above normal temperature and thought you know i should really get Tested uh, for COVID-19, so I went through uh, one of these drive-through uh, clinics at an urgent care, which is actually pretty efficient. You do an online consultation with a, a physician, and then you do a drive-through. And I actually did the the swab test, not the PCR. So um, the swab test, the is swab, te- well, it's, they're all, all all swabs, but there's a PC, Either way, they're sticking a swab in your nose. But okay. one is a sort of quick antigen test, um, and they say it's it's less accurate. When in fact, I think it, it's probably uh, less prone uh, to give you a false positive, but more likely to give you a false negative. Well, I had symptoms, and so I thought, okay, I'm not worried about that, and the PCR, there's, there's problems on the other side. Uh, and so I did the antigen test, which is quick, had the answer back in a few hours, uh, positive. Now, you know, having written the book, I, I, I know that there's dangers with accuracy in all these tests, but the fact that I had this sort of telltale symptoms, was basically cold-like symptoms, uh, had a fever. It had started as kind of a sore throat. I thought, okay, this is—I mean, I think I'm a genuine case, uh, even though at the time I, they didn't recommend anything.
1: So you 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 did the swab test. How soon did you know? Within hours. So okay. that's the
0: thing about this is that um, it got crazy when my family, with my daughters and my wife, decided to do it too because they're in the house with me, and it took them a little longer. But in principle, they can do these. Uh, quick antigen test turn around in about 15 minutes. Well, but, I, had
1: a, I, had, I had to take the test at the White House because I was oh, yeah. introducing President Trump in an event. Yep. And it was strange the way they do this is they take your cell phone number mm-hmm. and you go in, you get the test and they say, if you don't hear from us, you don't have. it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So you're watching your cell phone or listening. Anyway, I didn't have it. You didn't, so you didn't so how did they them. let you know? Yeah,
0: no, actually, I had to call. They're okay. Sp- they were supposed to do that. That's the system is that they're supposed to text you, but actually, I called. And then they said, oh, okay, well, um, we need to have you talk to the physician. So I thought, I must be positive. So uh, I had to wait. But it was all digital. They did it over, you know, actually over. So you talked to
1: the physician, then then
0: Yeah. Well, she told me, yeah, you're COVID positive. How do you feel? I said, I feel like I have a cold. She said, okay, that's fine. Just, you know, I don't think you're not severe, at least at this point. So um, just keep checking your symptoms. Let us know um, if there's any sort of problems. And then I did that actually for several days. The, the sort of um, co- complication in the story is that I've had pneumonia twice. The second time I had pneumonia in 2016, it became pleural effusion, which is essentially when your lung sticks to the inside of your chest cavity. So, so
1: you had what well,
0: a comorbidity. Yeah, I, well, not exactly comorbidity in the sense that I didn't have some disease right. like obesity or type 2 diabetes or something like that. Right. Um, but I had had something, I had a sensitive lungs essentially. I mean, this was a major Episode two weeks in the hospital, most of that in intensive care, major surgery. Uh, didn't want to have pneumonia again, obviously. Um, and but as a result of this, my, I or I should say, my wife is very careful about testing things like oxygen.
1: Well, I don't want to jump ahead of the story, but which was worse, the pneumonia or or, um, oh, or this?
0: M- well, the, the, the bacterial pneumonia that I had in the first two times was far, far worse than this okay. for me. And it's because in both of those cases, it was probably just a cold. That's the funny thing. People often say, well, don't compare COVID-19 to the flu. Well, the flu can be terrible for people. I mean, the flu kills people, lots of people, right? It, especially if it becomes bacterial pneumonia. Because you've got you know you got a lot of stuff in your lungs, it can cut down on your oxygen, um, and so certainly that experience was far far worse than what I had with COVID 19. But of course in this case we were being more careful. I was watching. Uh, I was testing my oxygen. I mean who normally has yeah, a And, and you'd soximeter? also had sinus sur-
1: sur- surgery. Exactly, I had sinus surgery yeah. a couple
0: of times. And so respiratory things is. You know, in my house, my wife had said, "You know, the one person I'm worried about getting this is you." She told me, and you're the one that got it, and we haven't got it.
1: Yeah, you're, you're <laughs> like this—you're like this big, strapping, healthy guy. You're in the gym every day, and yet you're falling apart. Random things about every.
0: <laughs> no, I always say them. it's like every couple of years, I throw out my quad tendon or you right. know, I get pneumonia. <laughs> yeah, otherwise fine. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, what was the timing in all this? You went home and you 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 had these symptoms. Yeah, and, and, and so
0: this was about a, probably a week in. Um, We had been testing uh, my oxygen with these things called the pulse oximeters that you can get for $15. You know, you always, if the doctor goes on your finger, finger, exactly. And so it can test your pulse, but it can also test somewhat accurately your your blood oxygen levels out at the tip of your finger. Um, And you don't want this to go below 90%. In fact, it's better to be above 95%. And that's normally where I am. Uh, But one day it dropped below 90. It was in the 80s. I uh, this is so strange. I feel fine, you know? I, in fact, I felt better than I had.
1: Now, is the oxygen level the reason people used to get put on ventilators? That's right, exactly.
0: Okay. Put on ventilators probably prematurely. Yeah. And I had read several articles about people describing the pneumonia with COVID as quite different from the regular bacterial pneumonia in that when you have bacterial pneumonia and you've got a bunch of gunk in your lungs, you feel that. You feel short of breath. You know there's something wrong. Yeah. But if you have a viral pneumonia, which is much more is common with Uh, COVID-19, you might feel fine, and yet your oxygen will be dropping. And Mm -hmm. so it's a weird kind of thing. And so people will often wait too long. And so that's why we were actually testing it. And so at first I thought, I feel too good for my oxygen to be 87. There's got to be something wrong with this. My wife went to the drugstore. We got two pulse oximeters, which didn't agree, but both said I was below 90. And so we asked her doctor friend, and she said, "Mm Better safe than sorry. You better go to the emergency room. So I did. I went to an emergency room right here at Holy Cross, actually just mm-hmm. a few miles from here, uh, in, in suburban Maryland, outside DC, and uh, got to experience how COVID nineteen patients are processed. Essentially,
1: how that? What how?
0: I mean, so in this case, uh, Holy Cross had actually built a separate facility over part of their parking lot during the spring. So remember, there's the worry about uh, ERs being overrun. And so they had built
1: this. This was their version of the aircraft carrier. Yeah, exactly. Off Manhattan. Exactly.
0: Sort of a temporary structure that's not, not a tent, but feels like a tent on the inside. It's hard-sided, yeah. the giant HEPA filter, of course. And essentially, it's a way to quarantine the people that might have COVID from everybody else that's in the emergency room. They, had never, they said they'd never actually used this in the spring or summer, and this was the first day they had opened it because of an in, you know, news of an increase in cases. So it was me and three other people that were waiting for their tests, but they could do blood and chest x-ray and all this kind of stuff. Um, and so they tested my oxygen, which seemed fine when I was seated, but did go down when I was walking around, which was kind of a bummer. I was hoping it was just, you know, sort of bad instruments. So they did a chest X-ray and said, yeah, you've got the beginnings of viral pneumonia, uh, essentially. And so that's probably what it is. But again, no no coughing or phlegm or anything like this.
1: So what's the difference between COVID-19 and viral pneumonia? Well, I and mean, so... Is it, these things... Yeah. may I May I state for the record... I find this incredibly confusing. It can be, as, as absolutely. As to which disease you have. Yeah, and, absolutely.
0: And... and so it's the same thing with the flu. So the flu, of course, is a virus. But the flu, usually what, what ends up is somebody, something's really bad with the flu. Of course, the symptoms can be bad. But if it becomes infected with bacteria, right? So what can happen is that you start with a virus, right? You get the infection. It lowers your Uh, essentially your immunity to other kinds of things, and then bacteria take over in your lungs or in your respiratory system. And then you have bacterial pneumonia. Viral pneumonia is just essentially the inflammation that you get from the virus itself, Mm. but but bacteria have not settled in. And so you can still have this kind of swelling and reduction uh, in your capacity, essentially, to, to get oxygen into your system, just from the virus itself, and we know that this this bacterium, I mean, this virus that attacks your respiratory system, your your sinuses, and your throat, and your in your chest.
1: Now, are the treatments different for that? I mean, what? Well, they, they, you, they started treating you. Yeah. They? So what they did? Did you they, stay in the hospital? I did. I
0: stayed in the hospital overnight, okay. uh, In part, so that they could do a bunch of blood tests, and mm-hmm. essentially, what I discovered is that. Um the, the frontline workers, uh, you know, the people that are really on the front line, so ER doctors, the hospitalists, and the doctors and the nurses that are dealing with this, they've learned a lot in the last several months. For one thing, they're not putting people on respirators nearly as quickly as they can. Mm-hmm. They're also doing things like they'll give you a lot of things that are fairly benign that might work. So they'll give you a bunch of vitamin C, they give you a bunch of zinc, a v- bunch of vitamin D. They even gave me, I think, Lipitor, which is a statin that, of course, is for cholesterol, but there's some evidence that might kind of help through pepcid, right? Which is a, uh, something for heartburn. They give, give you that because there's some kind of correlation. It's, it's probably so just a correlation. just walk through
1: Walgreens and Yeah, no, but off. it's
0: like, okay, there's some evidence, and we know this is almost certainly not going to kill you to take a pepcid. So they give you a lot of this stuff. And then they do go ahead and they gave me a couple of antibiotics by IV and then a, a steroid, basically an anti-inflammatory by IV. Though you don't, of course, need an antibiotic, Per se, if you, it's just a viral infection because the antibiotic would be for the bacterium. But there's some evidence that for some reason, some antibiotics seem to have a, an effect, maybe an anti-inflammatory effect or something in helping this. And so they tend to do that, though I didn't have to stay on the antibiotic. Hmm. But when they released me, I did have to stay on uh, the, the steroid. Uh, dexamethasone, which is the kind of common treatment. And I can say that the the symptoms from that, uh, the bad effects from that were far worse than anything with COVID, actually.
1: Uh, You're watching the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Dr. Jay Richards. And uh, uh, Jay's the author of The Price of Panic and also a COVID-19 survivor. And we're talking about what that experience was like. So the drug they gave you afterwards which was was actually worse than everything else. Yeah,
0: it was. I mean that's and I've heard this, but it's a it's basically an anti-inflammatory steroid that you yeah. take which is really I mean it it strikes right at the symptoms. If you're having inflammation in your lungs or in your bronchial tubes it's exactly what you want. Uh, but for me, at least, it made my stomach hurt really, really badly. And worse than that, it made me feel like I was in a panic.
1: But they let you go home. They did. So and was, they said there's really nothing to do or worry about. And what was the time frame for when so the first symptom w- hit to when you didn't feel?
0: Well, so the first symptom hit, it was it probably it was almost a week before I was in the hospital. So basically, it was two weeks of symptoms, okay. I would say. Two weeks of symptoms and then a week of just feeling slightly tired, but still back to normal. I would say so. Just about what you hear about two weeks of symptoms, about a week for, with fever.
1: So, have you talked to a lot of other people who've gone through this now? I mean, do, I, have I've you formed to, a? a, a, <laughs> no, a I'm not a part of a Facebook a chat clutch, group yeah, or no. anything, <laughs> you know. But
0: you can, of course. We I talked to people that had it. I had friends who had it in the spring. Uh, many my age who actually had it much worse. I had some friends that said, well, it felt like there was uh, barbed wire going across his chest. He and his well, my friend and his wife that had it. I had nothing like that. It was basically. Uh, you know, in terms of the way it felt to me, it was essentially a cold that then, I think, honestly, because of my sort of complexities with my lungs, um, caused my oxygen to drop. Now, the question is, if I hadn't had the pulse oximeter, would it have sort of cleared out anyway? Because I was being, you know, I was resting. In other words,
1: it was the oxygen that sent you in. If you you hadn't known that, it might have just That's right.
0: In in fact, my, my general practitioner, when I met with him afterwards, said, you know, it's quite possible that you would have, been fine. You know, there's always that dilemma that if you test, you know, if you do a full body scan, you might find something you wouldn't have otherwise found that you would have survived, right? But then you've got to treat it. And there's no way to know that after the fact. So we just thought it's kind of better safe than sorry.
1: What about the emotional impact of this? Was there any point, any moment where you said, oh my, this is it?
0: No, not at all. Yeah. Um, and part of that is just the kind of the way it feels. I mean, if you have a really bad flu and you're dry heaving, you know, there's that moment where you think I might die. And then there's that moment where you think you might not die. You might keep (laughs) living with this, right? In my case, it was nothing like that. Now, some people that have this do have much more kind of flu-like symptoms, but this was basically the way it felt. It felt like a really a mild cold, except I kind of had a slight fever at the beginning.
1: Well, you've written now about also what the healthcare workers are going through. You learned a lot in this about what they're doing. And I think your respect for them has going way up. It
0: has. I mean, of course, I, I, I assumed they were having. To I mean, work not hard. that you didn't respect no, them absolutely. before. No, absolutely. But to see it, you yeah. know, to see it, and of course, I had to abstract myself because they they did a you know they take a um, it's called a arterial gas measure in which they stick a needle in your wrist artery. It's the best way to get your oxygen and CO two. So if you don't like having your blood drawn, try the try the arterial. Draw right, and so but it's the way they test. They went this. into not a they vein, did that, an artery, so not, yeah, into an artery, and so I mean, and so I had you know basically they're running out of places to poke. So I was having to abstract the torture <laughs> from uh, what I was watching, which is nurses and doctors. I mean, first of all, they're not wearing those little surgical masks; they're wearing very often two masks, an N95 without a valve, properly fitted to their face, face shields, goggles, gowns, uh, gloves over the gowns. This is, you can imagine if you're doing this eight, 12 hours a day, and you're having to communicate with patients, some of whom are not having an easy time speaking. And if you're, say, in, the, in this temporary facility with a loud HEPA filter, you can imagine the kind of communication difficulties. And this is what these folks are doing. Um, and it's hard. It, it's hard now. I was They wondered, I never told anyone, oh, I've got a book on this. So I want to ask you questions. But I, I was sort of, I, you know, I wanted to know what it was like. Most of them said, well, you know, we're kind of used to it. And none of them were panicked. Um, and what
1: did they tell you about other patients? I mean, you, you're you yeah. you're a gregarious guy. I'm sure you got engaged in oh, what, it, did, what did they say? They,
0: they told me, well, first of all, most of the people that were in the hospital were older than me and really in severe. Well, that's the risk group. Yeah, exactly. And they said, you actually, you seem fine. In fact, the, the doctor that I saw that morning said, you seem fine. I think you can go home. Uh, you're definitely better than everybody else that's here. The other people that I saw in the you know sort of clearing center... Uh, in the temporary ER, were you know people that probably had symptoms and thought I'd better go in and get tested, and so they were waiting. Um, it what certainly wasn't overrun with people. I think they were prepared for that. There were clearly a lot of people on staff, um, and you know, in, in some ways, I, for me, I felt like my impression is that the people on the front lines, the healthcare workers that are actually dealing with patients, are learning from experience policymakers on the other hand don't seem to be very quickly learning from experience i mean it's one thing to have advocated for instance population-wide lockdowns in march when you don't know what you're dealing with but to still be arguing this when we have so much data what,
1: what, did, what did the hospital workers healthcare workers think about the lockdowns
0: i don't know that i actually asked them
1: specifically yeah.
0: about that I, I one expressed one uh man that i think was a nurse expressed skepticism about it but it was sort of on his own um but but the lockdowns but in particular now
1: you've you have you you raised a point about masks and inferring from what they're wearing in the in the hospitals they don't believe the cotton masks really do anything that, no you're never
0: going to see I mean, it. if they believe that they yeah, wouldn't they wouldn't, they do, wouldn't all do all the do extra that. stuff and that's all i mean if you actually study the data you know it's not like we just stopped, started thinking about masks this year we have been studying the effects of masks since the Spanish flu, and trying to figure out what works. Yeah, and what there's doesn't some pictures work. of people yeah, in World War One yeah, with and cloth the masks same stuff. masks we but, have now. I'm telling you, no healthcare worker that's trying to avoid a virus <laughs> is wearing one of those. Yeah. Uh, one of those surgical masks. That's just not what they're for. Those are for if the wearer preventing you from basically spitting on people, and that's really what they're they're used for. They don't expect them to stop a virus.
1: So the spit would be a conveyor, but nothing else would be. I mean, it had to be... Yeah, so if
0: if you're just a a large globule of spit, right, it's going to catch that. The problem is that it's likely that this virus, just like the flu virus, in many cases is being transmitted by aerosols. And aerosols are the very tiny particles, again, there's still sort of moisture carrying the viruses. Explain that,
1: aerosols to aerosol me, because just, I, I think of aerosols, I think of the, you know, the, the shaving kit. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> not that. Yeah, no. so basically the aerosol, aerosol would aerosol? be,
0: think of it as a mist that's fine enough that it can just hang in the air. Okay. Right, so if you spit, the spit doesn't sit there in the air. An aerosol can can sit in the air because the particles are so small, maybe for hours before it dissipates. Think of it, it's like a... Do spark. masks
1: work with aerosols? Not those kinds of masks. No. Not, they just not, go right through. Not the masks. The, the mask that masks. 98% of people right. are wearing on the no, street it doesn't do, don't, don't, don't do not Don't really do anything. In fact, okay.
0: the other thing is, even if it was a solid mask, um, you know, you've got the same sort of volume in your lungs either way. And so if it's not fitted to your face, the air is just going to go around the mask. And so that's why you need a mask that, first of all, really filters... And then it has to be tightly fitted around your face so that the air has to go through that filter. And so that's why like the N95 mask, you know, it's, it's going to probably make a difference if you're wearing it right.
1: So that's what the hospital, the healthcare workers wear. Now, I've also been reading now that they also think that the eyes can be a source. Oh, absolutely. So yeah. we're missing that. I mean, the, all this craziness yeah. about masks.
0: Yeah. yeah, that's right. And then that's why the hospital workers, so they wear goggles or face shields and things like that, because basically... Yeah. Just think of these little tiny viral, viral particles in tiny little uh, bits of moisture floating in the air. They can get in your eyes, and get in your nose, they can get in your mouth. And, and unless you're really protecting those, there's not all that much you're going to be able to do to prevent it.
1: What about hospital crowding? I mean, we're now in December. We are. And the, you mentioned the political response. Yes. There's all this, oh my God, cases are going up, going to block people yeah. down. You know, the the restaurant and the... Place where Sarah and I go in our neighborhood now had like 14 tables. Now it has two. Oh, it's sad. We're very spaced. Yeah, very so, spaced. But so the politicians have reacted by making it even tougher to 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 congregate. Yes. What did you learn that would give you a point of view about that?
0: Well, uh, certainly um, it, this is a respiratory virus. And so what's happening right now is similar to what happens during flu season. So, of course, they're going to be not merely by cases. Let's just talk about actual cases that need to be uh, treated. Right. So I do think there's an increase in that, as would be expected with a respiratory virus. The problem is is the way we're coding this now, um, we don't actually know what's happening with the flu, because the way the CDC, in fact, the CDC quit tracking this on the website recently. And so it looks like we may be counting lots of cases as COVID cases that could very well be flu cases, or at the very least, we're not really tracking the flu anymore. And so what I suspect is going to happen is we're going to have this, this conglomeration that's going to follow the regular flu cold and flu season pattern that's going to include all the traditional common colds. It will include influenza. It will include COVID-19. Um, and we'll see that as is a is kind of a respiratory pattern that's existed since we've been keeping records, is that you have... Uh, deaths go up. Hospitalizations go up. Uh, there's no reason to think they're going the hospitals are going to be overrun In fact here in DC. I can tell you this because this is my experience um, I ruptured my quad tendon almost two years ago and lit when we were living in District of Columbia on the first Friday in February And the first two hospitals turned our, my ambulance away uh, And so I had to go to the third one and I said well, what's going on? He said um, you really don't want to get injured on the first Friday of the month in Washington D.C. because people cash their checks, they get drunk, and they end up in the emergency room. So literally <laughs> every yeah. And so this happens, you know. And why, so, why haven't
1: I heard about that? No, on you the never hear o'clock. about News. the first Friday. I know. No. And
0: so nobody, nobody's tracking that. The reality is that um, when you have something, they're gonna, it's gonna hit emergency rooms. There's no reason to think they're gonna be completely well, overrun.
1: Well, as I, am I, I, I keep struggling to find out what's real, what isn't real. Mm-hmm. If you take a look at cold and flu deaths. For the last decade, and you just do a chart across time, where they average two, two hundred fifty thousand a year. If
0: well, if you include uh, pneumonia, if you, yeah, okay, you, you got to include pneumonia. In
1: there. And then also, if you track that over time, you also see the vastly disproportionate numbers among people seventy-five and over. Of course, yeah, that's right. So how is this different from that?
0: It is very similar. I mean, this, is the, this has always been the thing that people bristle when you say, well, let's look at the flu. The reason we look at the flu is that the flu is essentially what more or less accounts for the annual variation in deaths once you control for things like population growth and things like that. It's how bad the flu season was. And it's really not the flu, it's the flu plus pneumonia and complications this is very much like that it's of course a different virus but it's a respiratory virus it's much more dangerous for people over 70 or 75 with comorbidities it's in fact it's a thousand times more dangerous for people like that than it is for the school-aged children that were, were mm-hmm. making use zoom and so that's just a, a, a fact that we now know and so the, the idea that policy wouldn't change based upon that fact it, it um it boggles the imagination
1: you're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Dr. Jay Richards, and we're talking about the uh, how lethal the COVID-19 is compared to the flu and, and, and cold and regular cold, cold and flu seasons. And uh, it's interesting. There's really not that much difference.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a very strange thing because um, initially, if you looked at, say, in March, the panic that, that sort of <laughs> beset the world was based upon a computer model by the Imperial College London uh, that assumed an infection fatality rate of 3.4%, which would have meant that COVID-19 was more deadly, far more deadly than the Spanish flu. So it would have been truly the catastrophic. Spanish flu
1: estimates anywhere from, what, 18 million to 50 million That's right, people?
0: 18 to 50 million, and at, at a time in which there was a much smaller global population. So this would have been truly catastrophic. Uh, now, we now know that that infection fatality rate is something like 0. 0.13 to 0.25%. Um, so... Um, they, at least that Imperial College London model was at least 10 times off. In fact, it, it estimated that it was at least 10 times more deadly than it actually is. And so that is part of what kind of uh, set the panic in. The problem was it wasn't really based on any data. It was based on uh, the assumptions that were plugged into the model. And so the, any policy response, if you think this bug's 10 times more deadly well, than we it is. Well, we were
1: skeptical about the model in March.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, as soon as, and this is actually what got my co-authors and I um, on this. Was we're actually not skeptical.
1: Enough, we're sort of like slack disbelieving yeah. that anybody could think those oh, no. numbers made oh, any no. sense. <laughs> <I know. laughs> well, this is what
0: it actually, because I mean, we went to the Bahamas in early March, and we were wiping everything down. We didn't have any information, right? I didn't know. Um, and then yeah, by, was, by yeah. late March, I thought, oh, no, this is not going to go well, because we're just we're, we're constructing policy based on complete conjecture.
1: Well, which is, was a great time to plug your book, *The Price of Panic*: How the Tyranny Experts Turned That Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Terrific book. I really, I, it's uh, right. it's something everybody should read. I wish our mayors and our governors would read it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, sir, one last question about the hospital workers: They were protected, but I've heard that they're. At more at risk, or are they? Are their death rates higher than the general population? Well, do they? Do we see that they're paying a price in fatalities? Not that we can tell.
0: In fact, Doug Axe and uh, William Briggs, and I actually wrote a piece at the Stream about this a few weeks ago, trying to analyze the data we have at the moment. And so far as we can tell, we they they're more or less track with the general population. So uh, you know, you would expect that they're, of course, at more risk in principle, but they're also taking much greater precautions. Extremely onerous precautions and so that seems to be you know seems to be working if you could sort of control uh, For age group they don't seem to be I wouldn't say they're not at higher risk It's just that they're taking much greater precautions and so it's more or less leveling out, but you don't it's not like you see massive uh, deaths and fatalities uh, uh, Among people that are in healthcare, just as you don't see massive massive deaths and fatalities amongst say grocery store workers for whatever reason so the people that you think are probably at higher risk than some of those some of uh, us that have a digital lives mostly, uh, they don't seem to be faring any worse.
1: What about school teachers?
0: Not that I've been able to see. Now, of course, the problem is is that school teachers, um, that's very hard to track because schools are doing all sorts of different things. And so what you need is a state, say, that is demographically identical to another state. One sends all the kids home. One has all the kids in schools. What we do know is that the countries, at least, that have opened up the schools... Uh, certainly are not doing any worse. We know that, in fact, there's good evidence that asymptomatic kids are probably very unlikely to be carrying or transmitting or spreading uh, the bug, Uh, but it's actually at the moment we haven't been able to find any data specifically about school teachers, just because you know it's such a mess, even in the U.S., it it changes from city to city.
1: Well, this may be confirmation bias, but you're really describing something that sounds like a regular cold and flu season, and we've had this massive political reaction to it that's made it a pandemic of fear, which we talked about last time we got together. And that fear is real.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are excess deaths. So there's been this debate, you know, and there was a a piece from a a student, uh, a a master student at Johns Hopkins had a paper and gave a lecture uh, suggesting, I I think that she was right that what we're doing, that um, a lot of the coding of deaths is being hidden. So flus, for instance, flu deaths that would have been flu deaths, previous years are being counted as COVID deaths this year. But there are definitely excess deaths this year. In other words, more than you would expect statistically. The question is how many of those are COVID-19 related and how many of those are from the lockdowns. And in fact, the CDC now is describing these excess deaths. They don't give exact numbers, but they are recognizing, okay, some of these we can attribute to COVID-19, say from or because of COVID-19. And then you've got these others that are unrelated. And we think at least some of those are almost certainly the result of the lockdowns or missed cancer screenings. Basically they're the price of the panic itself. Is,
1: will we ever know? Can yeah,
0: we will. We'll know um, like excess death calculations in order to really know you got to wait until 2021. And so we'll be able to sift this stuff out. It's just going to be after the fact, unfortunately.
1: Do you have speculation?
0: Yeah. I We think that excess deaths from the lockdowns, I'm speaking kind of generally, Will probably about equal the deaths from COVID nineteen. There'll be a, the 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 cost of the response will be as great as the deaths itself. Now the now the the advocates of lockdowns would say, well, the deaths would have been much greater if we hadn't locked down. But we give a lot of evidence in the book that that's just not the case there's no statistical signature of lockdowns actually well didn't you also do a
1: study that compared the lockdown states versus the non-lockdown states and you couldn't find there's no there is no signal you looked at like 13 states basically
0: all the states that we can track um you've got you've got the case curves you've got the death and hospitalization curves you've got the dates when the lockdowns either did or did not happen You'd ex- you know exactly what you should expect if the lockdowns mattered. Uh, it doesn't show up, and it doesn't show up in individual countries either. And so we think the evidence is—the the least that can be said is there is absolutely no empirical evidence that the lockdowns themselves, government-imposed lockdowns, make a difference.
1: Now, I belong to a club where I have an indoor court, which mm-hmm. is a highly prized thing to have in <laughs> yes. the winter. And now I've been told by the, uh, the uh, Montgomery County uh, health officials that we need to wear a mask while we're playing tennis oh, indoors. Yeah. Good idea, bad idea.
0: (laughs) Well, you don't need them. I mean, you could say... Uh, maybe it will. It gives your body a little extra stress, and maybe that will some, give you some kind of hormetic Yeah, I don't, my body does not no, need so extra stress. You need a little hormetic, hormetic <laughs> stress. I don't know. I mean, if it's one of these surgical masks, the good news is I've gotten used to working out in these darn things because they really don't filter all that much. Well,
1: they won't let you into the gym. No, but they're not
0: going to let you into the gym, and so you just wear them. Uh, and I, I really, I said, I'd really like to have a sticker that says, I'm good, I've had COVID-19, so I don't we, have to wear the well, mask. I
1: think but... we ought to start a campaign for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know,
0: but... I just feel like, okay, this is the cost of admission, you know. I'm just, okay,
1: fine. (laughs) So, uh, where does this all go from here? I mean, where are we? You know, it seems like the lockdown is this just still. I used to think this was related to Donald Trump. Yeah. And it is. Oh, sure. In the United States, he likes, he has a point of view. We're going to take the opposite view. But New Zealand and Australia have been incredibly uh, um, draconian. Draconian. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: I think it's a mistake. To, Americans, we tend to just think about the American context. Working on the book, we had to sort of look at it globally. And we very quickly realized, this is a global phenomenon. This is a global pandemic, and it's a global social pandemic. And that, I mean, we live in a global world in which information can travel from somebody's smartphone in Shanghai to you know, your smartphone in Chicago in a few seconds. And so that's just the kind of the reality of the situation. The Anglosphere, in general, uh, has been very panicked. Um it's actually countries with the exception of Sweden, which isn't in the Anglo Sphere, but is European uh, did not panic, and then a, a number of Asian countries uh, that didn't panic. The
1: Anglo Sphere. English yeah. it, yeah, English speaking people were, were, were more panicked than we're, anybody else. Oh it's
0: just unbelievable. The, I don't know. The Italians go out. Oh,
1: yeah, well, no, boy. and they had it badly.
0: Yeah, it's very strange, but the I mean New Zealand and, and um the UK and Canada and Australia are perfect examples of, of just just sheer panic, especially. Uh, in the antipodes. What
1: about the virus? I'm not the virus. We've been talking about the (laughs) virus. Another V word, the vaccine. Vaccines.
0: Well, so this could be, I I hope this is a wonderful story of uh, American ingenuity and know-how that maybe these vaccines, the first two, one from Pfizer and one I think from Moderna will will work. Um, I'm not holding my breath simply because at the moment the uh, the effectiveness of this is based on the company's press, press releases, <laughs> which aren't always all that reliable. We've never had an FDA-approved vaccine for coronavirus. And so this would be incredible if we were able to develop these in a few months uh, and they actually worked and they didn't have huge unintended consequences. But, I, you know, I'm open to that. It would be wonderful if that was the case.
1: Have you studied the relative effectiveness of different types of vaccines? I mean, on one scale or one end, I think we've got the polio vaccine. Yeah which seems to be oh yeah, and smallpox. almost 100% smallpox. Yes. We do have some vaccines. And those are vaccines for deadly things, too. Right. Remember that. Right. So
0: even if there's some risk, you're taking it because you don't want to get polio. You don't want to get smallpox, right? Yeah. But the less deadly uh, a, a disease is for you, the, the risk calculation is going to differ. And so it, it's very hard for me to understand why we would make school-aged children, for instance, take the coronavirus vaccine, especially even if it works, simply because it's so untested. I just think if I were a parent with young children, I, I would do a different risk calculation for that than I would do for smallpox uh, or for polio. Um, but I'm really, really hopeful that one of these vaccines is going to work uh, and that the really vulnerable people will be able to get it and it won't have bad, uh, bad side effects. But at the moment, I think that's an open question.
1: Well, it's going to be political. Yeah. The vaccines are going to be another sign like masks, I believe that I think you that's take right. the vaccine, you're you're a good person. It's yeah. virtue signaling. Yeah. And but there's a darker side to it. I began, you know, I, I, my fear is they're going to, we're going to need proof of a vaccine to oh, travel. Yeah. And yeah. what is it uh, one of the ticket master, who who was it that uh said they weren't going to let people into an event unless I've, they I'd had heard proof this. of a vaccine.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the... That's what is truly I mean, worth I,
1: I, I stopped. I, concerts. Yeah,
0: fine. Okay, I won't <laughs> go to a
1: concert. All right, good.
0: <laughs> I know.
1: All right, I won't go to a concert.
0: No, that, <laughs> that would be genuinely terrifying. And that's a different question. <laughs> about Vaccines in general is one thing. Uh, mandated vaccines in which everyone absolutely has to, uh, to, to vaccinate themselves and their, their children. I think that is a different question. And I, I
1: mean, think the next big policy... Fight, whether it 's policy or not, I think this whole vaccine thing is going to be also extremely divisive
0: oh, absolutely yeah, absolutely, and we need to have rational conversations about vaccines and again, just like in anything, weigh the genuine costs and benefits
1: are you and uh, Bill and uh, Doug also working on a something on vaccines we've been studying it, but at the moment
0: yeah. we don 't the reality is we're at the press conference or the press release stage of this in which the, we don't have access to the data, uh, that these are pro- proprietary sort of technologies by these private companies. Uh, they're claiming 90, 95% effectiveness. I, I'm moderately skeptical. I hope, I hope it's true.
1: Well, I hope you do because I think you and Doug and Bill, I mean, you've got three PhDs. We've got statistics. We've got economics, philosophy, and, uh, and uh, biology. Biology, yeah it's a it's an all-star lineup and you've done some really good work on it. We need we need that on vaccines.
0: Yeah, we're planning to do some analysis on it.
1: Uh, one last point about the vaccines. I, I sort of think the way to get people to take the vaccines is to have a press conference where Donald Trump takes the vaccine. <laughs> and then in comes Mike Pence and takes the vaccine and then, coming in behind him would be Anthony Fauci. <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great idea, actually. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, think about the uproar. I mean, oh, absolutely. certain people are going to say, Trump's taking it and it should go to some yeah. nun in, uh, in uh, you know Columbus, Indiana. Yeah. Somebody else is going to say, uh, well, he's taking it, but it's not. I mean, it, this whole thing is such a... Uh, oh,
0: it really is. Uh, I mean, vaccines shouldn't be political, but viruses shouldn't be political either, and here we are.
1: That sounds like a final word <laughs> until our next one. And yes. don't get virus between get don't get something else between our, our show and our this show and our next one. So Jay Richards, he's uh, author of The Price of Panic: How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Uh, Jay is always insightful and bright, and I'm thrilled he got through the COVID-19. And it sounds like uh, it's something we can all survive if we take care of ourselves. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over a hundred episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.